prayer and good encouragement for us to know that there are multiple ways that we worship God, and we worship God through prayer as well, prayer and giving and everything. So, so thank you about, thank you for that. And today that actually segues into our sermon today, which is called Prayerfully Chosen, Luke chapter 6. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn. So do you remember having, ever having a really important decision to make? I'm sure we all could say yes. <coughs> you know, I mean, even if you're young, you've probably had some important decisions at some point. Maybe it was an important job change. Maybe it was an important health decision. You know, whatever it was, it was overwhelming. And to make this decision, if you made the wrong decision, it could go badly. And it really would just felt the, the weight of that decision on you. And I pray that you sought the Lord like Jesus does today when he comes to a big pressing decision as he chooses his 12 disciples that would be sent out as apostles. And so today we're going to see Jesus go to his heavenly father deep in prayer as he prepares to choose these 12. And you see, uh, Jesus had become kind of somewhat of a lightning rod in Israel. Uh, there were those who liked him, and there were those who hated him. There was this dichotomy. And, you know, if you mentioned Jesus' name, it either brought fury, uh, as we saw in verse 11, uh, which is kind of really segues Jesus choosing these 12 here because he could see, obviously, the turbulent waters were coming. He was going to get a people to take over once he was eventually crucified down the road. Or... He either brought hate or he brought, oh, yeah, this guy's okay. I really like this guy. Um, and so uh, Jesus' ministry, we're seeing it, as we've already seen throughout the book of Luke already, continues to get more and more opposed as he's doing different things because he seems to kind of poke the bears, uh, so to speak. He keeps doing things on the Sabbath, which the uh, Pharisees and religious leaders are not a fan of. And that is where we join today. So let's go ahead and start reading in Luke 6, verse 12. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when they came, or when, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, there's a lot in here. It doesn't look like a lot at the very beginning, but there's just so much here as we see these 12 men that you chose to be apostles, your 12 disciples who were apostles and sent out. Um, as we're going to see these uh, throughout the, this, this gospel, and, and even uh, if you read the book of Acts and we see the early church, that these men changed the world. Um, but we're going to see that these men were not perfect by any means, just like we're not perfect, and, and sometimes we don't feel like we can be used by you. And so I pray that we're encouraged as we hear about these men, as we see, we're also encouraged as we see you teach us how to pray diligently, how you prayerfully chose these men. And may we leave today with understanding how important prayer is, first and foremost, and also how important obedience to you is as we go through this, and also how big that you are, how, how you can use even sinful people like us. We thank you and praise you. Amen. All right, so today we're going to talk about three uh, aspects of Christ prayerfully choosing. The first is Christ prayerfully chooses his apostles. Christ prayerfully chooses his apostles. I'm going to read, read verse 12. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So Jesus goes out to a mountain to pray, and we're like, well, why does he go 
to a mountain? Well, obviously, it's a place of solitude and seclusion. It's in the wilderness. And, and it was just him and his father together in prayer. And we see that he prayed how long? All night. You know, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, I know we talked about having a big decision at the beginning and how hard that is sometimes. And hopefully we go to the Lord in prayer, but I don't think most of us spend eight to ten hours in prayer and, take, and, and don't and take the whole night uh, there. But Jesus did. Uh, he, he knows that this is a big decision. So why is Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, praying all night about this decision? Well, he had quite a big decision to make, and he wanted to be sure that he was doing his Father's will. And, and he laid down his own will and was led by the Spirit, as we talked about toward the beginning of this book. And although he remained fully God after the Incarnation, some things were revealed to him and some things were not in his humanity. Uh, we see that in Mark thirteen thirty two that he did not know the day or the hour in which he would return. That was something that just wasn't revealed to him. But then we see other times where Judas, where he knows he's going to betray him ahead of time. We see multiple times where the deity of Christ does come through in this. But we don't know what, what was really pressing here. Obviously, he wanted to make the right decision. You know, he, he had a bunch of disciples at this point. These 12 are just the chosen apostles of the disciples. Uh, he had a lot of people that were following him at this point. I mean, obviously, he's done some crazy miracles. He's you know, healed a man with a withered hand. We've seen paralytics healed, and we've seen some great things. And so people, they, they like that. They were like, well, this guy's pretty cool. You know, let's go ahead and follow him. But you wonder what he's thinking about. Is, is he thinking about Judas? My God, or, you know, that's going to be a hard pick. He, he knows, hey, this guy's going to betray me. He's going to stab me in the back. And you want me to walk with him that close? You know, or the other apostles. I mean, let's just think about it. The other 11, even though, you know, Judas obviously betrays him, the other 11 scatter when it comes to the cross. You know, is he thinking, is this really who you want me to pick? You know, you just wonder, you know, he's struggling, like, how hard is this going to be? You know, obviously he wants to, 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 to be in the will of God, and he doesn't question God, but I'm sure there's some seeking. Like, okay, am, am I hearing this right? Is this, is this correct? Is this it? Because I know what, what is coming. And so we don't know the, the details of this extended, diligent prayer. We don't know what's going through Jesus' mind. We don't know why it takes him eight to ten hours in prayer before he comes down. But we do know that he models persistence in prayer. And we see him give that great example. I love this quote by theologian Kent Hughes. He spurs this on as he quotes John fifteen five. He says, Jesus didn't say, apart from me, you can do something. Rather, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And Jesus understood that with his Father, and he teaches us that, that we have to be plugged in to God. And that doesn't mean you can't do anything at all. Obviously, we see people that are godless that do something, but when, when he says something, he means something eternal, something that's lasting, something that's not going to burn up whenever our deeds are, are, led before, are brought before Jesus Christ. And so we can do nothing apart from him that is eternal, eternally lasting. And may we model this type of prayer, but we see it not just as something we do out of obligation, as Brother Jim mentioned, it is something we should do, but, but the way that we approach it should not be that way, because it's, it's a conversation, a relationship with God, as Jim so, uh, so primed the, the conversation here, I always laugh sometimes in growth group or in his prayers, I feel like he's, he's reading part of my sermon, uh, just amazing how God works to, to make sure we, we emphasize certain points, and it's a relationship with God. You know, Jesus was so close to the Father because he talked to him all the time. Like it was, he just walked, prayed without ceasing. That's what we're supposed to do. And do we see it that way? And we as a church at Crosspoint, we need to strive to be a praying church and to continue to be a praying church. Men, I implore you, 6.30 Tuesday morning, 
we pray. And it is so important for us to be here. I know some of us can't make it due to schedules, things like that. But if there's any way you can make it, make it a priority. It is so important to converse with our Heavenly Father and lift up our church, our world, and uh, other things to the Lord and our, our members, our people here. And if it's important to Christ, it should certainly be important to us. And we see in James 5, 16, the second half, it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So my friends, if you are in Christ, you are a righteous person, not because there's anything intrinsically good in us, but who lives in us? Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous. So when we lift up our prayers to God, they go through Jesus Christ and they're seen as righteous prayers and God works in those prayers. How beautiful is that? So do we really believe that our prayers have power? And you know, I think, I think most of us in the church would say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe that my prayer has power. I believe that God can work through prayers. I believe that God does work through prayers. But let's just be honest. Do we, do we pray that way? Do we pray like our prayers have power? You know, we, we put gasoline in our cars because we know that they need that, right? You know, you're, you wouldn't just go out and be like, ah, you know, you, you do it because you believe that if you put gasoline in your car, it's going to move. But do we believe that prayer is the engine, is the gasoline for our spiritual lives? Do we believe that it connects us to the electricity that kind of keeps us going? And, and I'd, I'd have to admit, I, don't, I think most of us in the church, just and universally, maybe don't believe it the way we should. Because when we truly believe something, we do it. You know, a lot of times we, we, we believe things with our head, but not, not as much with our heart. We don't see prayer is as powerful as it is. So I just pray that we're not, we're not only doers of the word, being obedient, but we're also doers of prayer, because it is a command as well. Well, getting back to Jesus, he's, he's prayed all night, and now he's going to come down and choose the twelve in verse 13. It says that when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So before getting to these twelve men specifically, we see that number twelve, and when do we see the number twelve in the Old Testament? The twelve tribes of Israel. So God is a God of continuity. Don't you love that? And we actually see that these 12 men, minus Judas plus Matthias, because Judas hangs himself, he's thrown out here. Matthias replaces him in Acts 1. It says that these 12 will actually be judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the millennial kingdom in Luke 22, 29 through 30. It's just beautiful to see the, from Genesis to Revelation the continuity of God and how he is consistent uh, there. And these 12 men are called apostles, which in Greek is apostolos. And, and this word means one who is called and sent out. It refers to, to messengers on a mission, and th this is a special group of men. And if you remember, we mentioned apostles a couple of times. This word can be misconstrued in some churches. It can be, you know, a lot of times we'll, they'll, 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 there's the new apostolic reformation, which is a, a heretical false teaching that there are new apostles today that can bring revelation. We know that the revelation of God is closed. This is the word of God. God, no, no, God is not adding to it. It is the complete word of God. So there are the big A apostles, and this is just these 12 men minus Judas plus Matthias. Uh, if we're kind of looking at that, plus Paul, we see as the Gentile apostles, if we're looking as well. And these big A apostles personally walked with Jesus or experienced Jesus or saw Jesus on earth. And they also saw the, the before and after the resurrection. But now we are also apostles, and this is where it can get kind of confusing, but we're little A apostles. We're, we're sent out to evangelize our world. We're sent out to be ambassadors for Christ. And so we are ones who are sent out to tell good news of the gospel. Uh, these big A apostles are no longer. Uh, they, they will be in the future, as we talked about, and they were the men who were said to have turned the world upside down. They were given amazing abilities that, that were not necessarily given. 
um, and, and they were sent out specifically to start the church. But let's not forget that we are still little a apostles. We still are sent out to share the gospel. And so that, is, that means that we're not, that still means we are important, an important part of the kingdom of God. And these 12 men that Jesus prayerfully chooses as apostles, and like the, these 12 men that we've talked about that we're about to get into, but they're also still apprentices as well. And that brings us to our next, next point. Christ prayerfully chooses his apprentices. And I'm going to read these names again. Uh, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called a zealot, and Judas the son of James. So now we come to these 12 men, and I know some of you just counted, and there were 11 that I mentioned. Uh, Miss Sandra was seeing the handout and saying, hey, I only see 11. Got to go to the next point. We'll get to number 12 in a moment. But these men would, would continue to be referred to, even though they were, they were apostles, they were still disciples, or as the word uh, in Greek can actually mean apprentices, students, pupils, that were continue, continually taught by their master. And we've been given this list, and we, as, as we're going to get into these men, uh, we're going to talk just a little bit about them today, and we're going to see them throughout the book of Luke as we go through. We'll see different accounts and how they interact. But if you study the scriptures, you're going to see these men are not, not the most exceptional group of men. You know, I, I, I know we all are ordinary. We all are, uh, you know, just sinners. I get that. We're all inadequate. But these men kind of stand out in that inadequacy. I mean, when you really look and we see their lives, uh, it really, uh, it's really amazing that God chose to use these 12 men. And let's go ahead and start and kind of get into these guys. So the first, we come to these first four. They are all four fishermen. We have two sets of brothers, and they're, and they're fishermen. And we're going to start with uh, Simon Peter. This is the man that Christ states that he will build his church on. Well, that's a pretty strong statement. So when we think about that, like this guy is going to be a rock star. He is going to be the greatest guy you could ever imagine. I mean, this is, if you just think about somebody like this is going to be amazing. And Peter was born a natural leader, and we see that. I mean, he, he is a strong-willed fellow. But the problem with being a natural-born leader is he lacks humility a lot. And he's kind of that shoot first, ask questions later. You know, like, oh, well, let's just do this thing. And he lacks that humility to, to be the leader that he was supposed to be. And God will teach him that humility throughout his life, and he will become more and more humble. And Peter does, will be a part of some amazing things. We see Jesus is transfigured. Peter's there. Just amazing. Uh, we, we see a, a girl raised from the dead. P Peter's there. I mean, he's just there. But right after the transfiguration, what is he? He says a bonehead thing. He's like, he puts Jesus in the same, you know, category as Moses and Elijah. And like, oh, let's build some tents and let's stay up here. And you just want to hit your head and be like, come on, you, didn't, you don't get it yet. You don't get it. And then even when he finally does get it and he says, hey, you're the son of God. And he says it. And, and Jesus is like, you know, that's been revealed to you by God. That's not something that man would know. Shortly, like the, the next account right after it, he gets called, get, here Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, so you just look, he's just got this up and down bipolar type of ministry. And obviously at the very end of his life, he, he or at the, at the very end of, of Jesus's life, he denies him three times, but yet is restored. But despite his struggles, we see God use Peter miraculously in at Pentecost. 3,000 souls are saved, and he becomes the pillar, the rock of the church early on. And Peter proves that Christ can do great things through even the toughest and most stubborn-minded of people. Next we come to Andrew. Andrew is Peter's brother. He's also part of the inner circle, but not the inner inner circle. Uh, Andrew's kind of the silent type. We, we really kind of see him fall to the wayside. He's mentioned a decent bit, but we don't see him 
doing a whole lot other than bringing people to Jesus, which is kind of cool. He's actually who brings Peter to Jesus, and he brings other people to Jesus. Um, but, but he's kind of that, that, that sit in the background, back behind the scenes kind of guy. And, and that's good to see that Jesus uses, God uses even those who maybe aren't front and center. And then we have James and John. So, so James is most likely the older brother of John. John's uh, the, the disciple that wrote the book of John, the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. James, though, James didn't write the book of James. That's actually James' half-brother that wrote that book, if that's kind of confusing for you. But Jesus, uh, he, he picks these two guys, and these two guys are not your typical guys. These guys are, are pretty, uh, we'll just say, inten- uh, intense, maybe is a good word. They're actually called the Sons of Thunder, and they kind of show that firebrand mentality when there's some Samaritans that reject Jesus, and you know what they say? Jesus, can we just call down fire and consume them all? Let's kill them all. Like, I mean, these guys are pretty tough. Like, they, they have a strong resolve, but wow. I mean, you know, they talk about having a little anger issue. Like, they're just like, let's, let's just destroy them all. You know, I, I saw you doing the Old Testament. Let's do it again. You remember the prophets of Baal? And let's, let, let's, let's make this happen. And yet James would go from that and that intensity uh, to being the first martyred apostle of the twelve. Uh, and so he, Jesus, God would use his strength to stand firm in the midst of opposition, as we see in Acts chapter 12. And then John, it's amazing that, that he and James are, are called the sons of thunder, kind of known as these tough, angry guys that are just ready to call down fire and ready to do whatever. They were fighting for, for the right hand of Jesus in heaven, getting their mommy to do that, which is another story for another day. But, I mean, just like here these guys are, talk about competitive, man, like, hey, I'm going to get my mom to go and help me get some you know, get, 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 get some points with Jesus. But this, that same John, who was known as this firebrand guy, ends up being called the apostle of love because he uses the word love more than 100 times in his writing, and you just see him as this really loving, nurturing uh, guy. And it, uh, we went through the book of First John, actually the first book we went through, and it was just amazing. He was like a, a father talking about loving his children, his children in the faith. Just amazing to watch God sanctify us. He takes us he, just as we are, but then he changes us and sanctifies us, as we'll see with these guys here. Next, we come to Philip and Nathaniel. So this is the next group. We had the first four, and now we're coming to the next four. So Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is also called Bartholomew here, but usually he's Nathaniel. And uh, Philip and Nathaniel are only mentioned by name in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels because they have a lot of parallel accounts. John's kind of a different Gospel, has a lot of uh, different stuff. John writes his later. He's the only one that's not martyred for the faith, so he actually writes his Gospel later in life. It focuses more maybe on theology if we're kind of looking there. But we do see both of these men mentioned in the book of John in chapter 1, verses 45 through 51. And during this account, we see that Philip has been called by Christ, and after that, he goes to get Nathaniel. And he says, hey, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel, what does he say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? So now we see a guy with prejudice. So this guy's like, no, man. I mean, so here this guy is coming with prejudice as he walks toward Jesus, but yet Nathaniel's in awe of Jesus because Jesus tells him, you know, I saw, I saw where you were at when, when Philip called you. And just took that one thing that he could see, he, he showed his supernatural ability, and all of a sudden Nathaniel's like, yeah, wow, you are, you are who, he says, who he said you are. And so here we see a man with prejudice chosen by God and sanctified. And then the last time we see Philip say anything in the Gospels, he makes the, one of the most disappointing statements that you can make. Jesus is getting close to the cross, and Philip's like, well, if you could just show us the Father, just show us the Father, then that would be enough for, for us. And 
Jesus is like, have I not been with you so long? To see me is to see the Father. I know some people will say Jesus never claimed to be God. That's absolutely false. He did multiple times, and here's one that he does. But Jesus can even use those who are slow to learn and understand like Philip, and he can use those and deliver those with prejudices like Nathaniel. Then we come to Matthew and Thomas. Matthew we talked about in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. He's the tax collector. I won't go into detail because we kind of already talked about him. And if we remember, uh, were tax collectors really popular in Israel? No, no, they were actually known as the lowest of life forms right beside murderers. Like, like they, they were kind of in the same kind of thing. But then, you know, Thomas is new to the Gospel of Luke. And if any of you have been around the church, you... Uh, you, you know the name Thomas, and even if you haven't been a part of the church, you've probably heard of a doubting Thomas. Thomas gets a pretty bad rap because of his uh, uh, pessimism in Scripture. Uh, if we look, and he, he's known as a doubting Thomas because in John 20, after Jesus is resurrected, Thomas isn't there. We don't know what Thomas is doing at the time while everybody else is meeting, and Jesus appears to them, but the disciples tell him, and they're like, and Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see the nail-pierced hands, and a week later, uh, he actually does see Jesus as Jesus comes again. But, I, I, you know, I really, um, as much as I want to defend Thomas, uh, because I can be a realist. My wife will maybe call that a pessimist. I, I think it's realism, um, so we, we just have to disagree on that one. But, but I have to admit that, that, that Thomas is a pessimist. I mean, I, I really, you got to love the guy. It's really hard to defend him, but but, but if we read John eleven sixteen, so Jesus is, so Lazarus, Lazarus has died. And uh, Lazarus is in Judea. And if we look at contextually where this is at, um, people in Judea want to kill Jesus. And so that's why they've left Judea at this point. And so Thomas, knowing that people are trying to kill them and kill Jesus, and uh, Jesus says, hey, uh, Lazarus is asleep. They don't really understand that he's dead, but he's asleep. And we, we, we need to, we're going to go back. We're going to go visit Lazarus. And, you know, instead of being like, no, what are you thinking, Jesus? We're not going to go there. Listen to what Thomas says. I mean, you just got to have some respect for this. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, you know, that's just, just, that's just realism or pessimism. I think probably more pessimism. But you, if you can get past the pessimism, you do see some resolve there. He said, let's go die with him. I mean, you know, for, for each his own. But we know that God can even use the negative Nancys of the world for his glory. So then we come to the three lesser known uh, disciples here before we get to Judas. We have James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, also known as Thaddeus. I'm pretty sure Judas, the son of Z J James, probably went by Thaddeus after Judas's betrayal. Well, just, just call me Thaddeus. Don't call me Judas. I'm pretty sure that was an unfortunate name that he had. Um, but James, the, Alf Alf uh, the son of Alphaeus, James the Less. We know just about nothing about this guy, and it's a beautiful picture of how God uses those in the background, because this guy would continue to go on to be an apostle, and he probably did some amazing things that we have no idea about. We don't have them written down here, but we know that God saw them, and God, God sees those things. Then we come to Simon the Zealot, and we're not really given anything about him either other than he is a zealot, but being a zealot does tell us a decent bit. I don't know if you all know what a zealot is uh, or who zealot, the zealots were during first century Judaism. Uh, the Zealots were a radical group of, is, uh, um, almost said Islamic, I Israelite extremists. Um, sorry, not different type of Zealots, um, if we're looking there. But they were a radical group, and they, re they radically resisted Rome. Like, they, they would actually take pride in assassinating Roman generals, people that were in charge, and they would do whatever they could because they hated Roman occupation. And the ironic thing about Jesus calling this man is that he called a 
Roman sympathizer to be one of the disciples we just mentioned a little bit ago. Can you think of somebody that maybe worked for the Roman government that now is a, a disciple, an apostle? Matthew. So isn't it ironic that we have Matthew, this, this Roman sympathizer who is working for the Roman government and taxing his own people, and now we got Simon the Zealot, who probably would have shot, well, they didn't have, you know, you know, they could have shot him with a bow, I guess. They didn't have guns, and sorry, I'm still thinking about our video from the beginning of the service, but, but, but he probably would have taken him out if he had a chance. So isn't that amazing that God can take who you think is your enemy, and you can go to church with them. You know, they, they can become part of your posse that God is using. I mean, how amazing is that? Sometimes the, the people that you would think would be the last people that could be saved are the people that are, that are chosen. And you're like, wow, God, like, what was that? Why would you bring this guy? And this is the humbling thing we need to be able to figure out. Obviously, you have Simon, who, who was, who's pretty rough and tumble kind of guy. You got Matthew, who was obviously a sellout, and they both had to learn to walk together. I mean, how, how amazing is that? The God that the gospel can, uni can unify even the most unlikely of candidates, and that's the beauty of the gospel, because we all are at the same level playing field. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all deserve death. We all deserve hell, and if we all come with that mentality, then how can we look at somebody else and say, well, you're too bad to be saved, because that means you're too bad to be saved, right? So we have to realize we all are too bad to be saved, but Christ is bigger than our badness. How amazing is that? And he can save us all. And then finally, we get to Judas, the son of James, also named Thaddeus. Um, and, and we see Thaddeus speak one time in the Gospels where he asks a question about the Holy Spirit coming. And we really don't see anything else about James, or, you know, about, um, James or Judas as well, other than Judas had that unfortunate name of being shared with Judas the traitor. When we think about these many biographies, and, you know, I mean, it's good to kind of get an overview of, of the guys that are kind of coming up that we're going to see in different accounts as we move forward. But what can we learn about these guys as we've kind of talked about each one of them? I think, number one, we can learn that Jesus used sinners, and he can use you too. I think that's really important for us to know. Sometimes we see ourselves as inadequate. We're like, because, let's just be honest, it's true. You are inadequate. I am inadequate to be used by God, but God is bigger than our inadequacy. He can use un unlikely individuals to do extraordinary things. Another thing is when Christ, what Christ does in your life, what he can do in your life is not limited by your weakness. It's limited by your obedience. So I think, let's just say it again. So what Christ does in your life is not limited by your weakness. It is limited by your obedience. Jesus can do anything through you if you'll allow him, because he is all-powerful. Not because you have the ability to do anything intrinsically. Really, apart from God, we can do nothing good, right? I mean, we just talked about that before in John 15. But as Paul asserted in 2 Corinthians 12.10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So our weakness shows Christ's strength as he works through us at those times. And also, a really important thing, I think, before moving forward a little further, is Jesus restored sinners, and he can restore you, too. So Jesus isn't limited by your past. He's not limited even by your yesterday. He's not limited by your this morning. You know, maybe you had a rough morning this morning. Maybe you, maybe you got in a fight with somebody in your family. Maybe something happened, and you're like, God can't use me. You know, I, I can't even get along with people. I can't. How, how many times do the disciples mess up? Like, I mean, some, some really big mess-ups. How many times they asked questions that were just, they should have known the answer to? 
I mean, even, even after the Holy Spirit fell, we see Peter rebuked by Paul because he's being a little hypocritical by not eating with the, the Gentiles. As we see that, and we see it in Galatians as well, as Paul's talking about it. But Jesus is gracious to restore you. How amazing is that? You repent, you repent of your sins, you turn to him, and he will restore you. And we see that in, with Peter at the end uh, of Jesus' life. Jesus has been arrested. Peter bounced a little bit. Then he starts kind of looking from a distance. And what does he do? He denies Christ three times. But yet, how beautiful is, is it that Peter is restored? And, and Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And feed my sheep. I mean, how amazing is that? Just a beautiful restoration. My friends, Jesus can use even you and me. Even the inadequacy of us, we can be used. And God uses inadequate people because we are all inadequate, and it's all he has to work with. How beautiful is that? I mean, you know, I know that's not a very good humanistic uh, Joel Osteen type of quote, but it's just true, and I think there's just something liberating about that. You know, this whole movement that you are great that we see in some false churches that, you know, humanistic movements where you can do all, all things through you who strengthens yourself, you know, and, you know it's just, just these awful heretical ideas. The pressure's all in you. And I mean, here's the thing, we can't bear that pressure. We're not, we're not built to bear that pressure, and we can't. We will fail. But how beautiful is it when we realize that we are inadequate, we are not good, but Christ can do all things as he strengthens us. Now, h- how amazing is it? Christ is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. And even, even from the inadequate people of this earth like us, may we bring him glory. Finally, we come to our last point. Pr- Christ prayerfully chooses his adversary. His adversary. This is the second half of verse 16. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So finally, we're introduced to the last disciple, and it's Judas Iscariot, who, as Luke says, became a traitor. His, la- his last name there, kind of like this, as they put there, is Iscariot. And it's likely comes from a, a region of Judea. Um, which is interesting because all the other 11 disciples or apostles here are chosen from Galilee. So Judas is the only one that's not from Galilee. And when we see the gospel writers give the list of disciples, whose name comes at the end every single time? Judas. So we see Peter come at the beginning of everyone. He's the rock in which the church was built on. We see Judas is the anti-Peter. <laughs> like he's, he's exactly at the opposite end. And most of the time when the disciples are mentioned, they, they, they like to little, add that little blurb. Yeah, he's a traitor. He's a betrayer. He's this, you know, they, they let you know ahead of time. It's not a, not a great guy. But I think the inter- interesting thing we can learn about Judas is while he's walking as a disciple and an apostle of, of Jesus before the betrayal, he must have been a pretty upstanding guy. And why, do, why would I say that? It's because they, they, in charge, they, they entrusted him with the money. Like he had the money bag. And I mean, think about the treasurer. You know, so Jim does a lot of our treasury things with oversight for me and Adam, and so we, we have that, but you, you don't give the money to somebody you think is going to take it. Now, obviously, we see that, that, is, that, that that's a deceptive thing that, that Judas does because we actually see that he was taken from the money bag, but the disciples looked at him as a trustworthy guy. You, you, the the money is going to be with somebody you really trust, somebody you think is going to be upstanding, that they're not going to be doing wrong things. But from all accounts, the, 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 the disciples did not suspect Judas doing anything wrong. They, they, he looked like he was doing what was right. And, and in fact, we look at Jesus when he washes the disciples' feet, and one of those disciples at the time was who? Judas. Can you imagine washing Judas' feet before you know he's going to go and sell you out and to betray you with a kiss later on? I mean, just how humble is Jesus, how loving is Jesus, that he would still wash his feet 
Uh, I mean, I don't think I would really do that. Uh, I know I wouldn't do that, so it's just amazing how, how loving that he is. But even after saying, they wash the feet, they're, now, now they're, they're, they're having the Lord's Supper as it's being instituted, and Jesus says that the one that he dips, he says that somebody's going to betray him, and the one that he dips the morsel in, and the person that he hands it to would be the betrayer. I mean, that sounds pretty obvious, right? It's like, you know, you, he's sitting right there, that guy, he's the guy that's going to betray even though that's done right in front of everybody. And you think everybody would, all of a sudden, they start to pummel Judas and beat him up. Like, that's what, uh, hog time, like, you're not going anywhere, man. Like, you think that that's where they would be. But they had such a high view of Judas, they thought, oh, that must not be it. And Judas gets up and leaves, and what do they say? Uh, we actually see that they thought that he was going to buy something for the feast, or what? Give something to the poor. We see that in John 13. So they thought, even right before he betrays, that Judas was going to do something great. He was going to go give some money to the poor or, or buy something for the feast for them there. Judas had a reputation of being upright, and he played the game extremely well. He, he seemed to walk the right way and talk the right way. He hung out with the right people, including Jesus himself is who he's hanging out with. But as my friend, Pastor Josh Bailey, alluded to, Judas is a prime example that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a correct posture toward Jesus. Let me say that again. Proximity to Jesus does not guarantee a correct posture toward Jesus. Just because you are around the people of Jesus, just because you attend his church, doesn't mean that you are a true follower of Jesus. Jesus' call, uh, Jesus's call of disciples is one that requires complete obedience and submission. And that was one thing that Judas refused to do. He refused to fully submit. He outwardly submitted. He outwardly did the right thing, said the right things, was in the right place at the right time, gave his head nod at the right time, his approval. But he never truly believed and submitted himself to Christ. And let that be a lesson to us. May we test our hearts and make sure we're not like Judas, that we haven't just been around God's people. We haven't just been around God's church. We're not just doing the right things, but that we worship God the right way, that we love God the right way, which is fully submiss- submitting to Christ. As we come to a close, I want us to consider a couple things. Number one, friends, if you are in Christ, then you have been prayerfully chosen. We just saw these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles that were prayerfully chosen by God, by Jesus through the Father. Because we can see Jesus pray for us. How amazing is he? He prays for those that would be future chosen like us, and we see this in John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, meaning the, 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 the 12 that are with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So Jesus lifted up this prayer for us to be united in Christ, united together as well. There's a great prayer of unity there. Some 2,000 years before you were born. How beautiful is that? You were prayerfully chosen well before you were born, before the foundation of the world we actually see in Ephesians. And our account today has let us know that Jesus can use even you and me, even the inadequate people that are in this room right now. He can certainly use us. If he can use the diverse crew of misfits we've talked about already, he can certainly use us as well. And know that Christ has prayerfully chosen you. 
but you were chosen by God. And because of that, he has called you to step out in faith with boldness, with intentionality, through his strength, not your own. And, he'll, and know that he'll continue to pick you up and restore you. You, you can't, it, once you are a true believer in Christ, now I always asterisk that, but you, know, you need to make sure you are a true believer in Christ, but if you are a true believer in Christ, he will always restore you back. He will always discipline you and restore you. How beautiful is that? And, and any parents here, you know, you discipline your children, and they don't ever quit being your children, right? You discipline them and you restore them. You discipline them and you restore them, and, and that's how God does us, but in a much holier and righteous way than we could ever even as parents as we see in Hebrews however some in our churches are like Judas Iscariot they look chosen they look like they belong but their heart is far from God and their fleshly desires are for greed and to use everything for their own if that's you I pray that you repent and turn from your ways that you run to Jesus and submit to him in Romans 5:10, we see for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We see that Jesus is willing to reconcile his enemies. How beautiful is that? We were all enemies of God before we came to him in faith and repented of our sins. So I pray that you repent of your sins, that you turn from your own way and be made right with Christ. That you really test your heart and your spirit. Am I truly in the faith? And if you haven't done that, and as you ask this, you're like, yeah, maybe I, maybe I do look more like Judas. I, I look like I'm doing all the right stuff. I, I check the boxes. I go, to, I go to church. I go do this. I do that. I'm, I, I give here. I do this. But you know, I, I don't know if I've really fully submitted. I'd love to talk to you more after the service. And for those of you who are, that we talked about before, I pray that that you realize that what God can do through you is not limited by your inadequacy. It's limited by your obedience and that, we, that you fully give yourself to the Lord and let him, and just watch him do things through you and allow him to work through you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have prayerfully chosen even us, even in West Virginia, even in a small town like Hurricane Tays Valley here, that, that, that you have people here that you have chosen, that you love, that have responded humbly to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you've drawn and saved and sanctified. May you continue to sanctify us. As we see these men, they came to you as a mess. But God, as they moved forward, no, they weren't perfect, but they continued to become more like you. And we see Peter do amazing things. We see James stand firm even when temptation comes. Uh, he, he wanted that cush position at your right hand in heaven, and, and then all of a sudden he's the first apostle that is, killed for the faith and stand strong we hear countless accounts of peter you know being crucified upside down and and different disciples and apostles that are that are killed different ways because of the sanctifying work you made them more like yourself throughout their lives and so may you take us in our inadequate state like the disciples and may you sanctify us and make us more holy and help us to stand firm for you god lord we thank you so much and if there be anyone here that does not truly know you as their lord and savior they may know you in their head, but they don't know you in their heart. They haven't given their full self to you. They haven't submitted their will to you. I would love to talk to them about what it means to be a true follower of you. There is no better and more important decision this side of eternity. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time together, and may we go out this week and be used by you. Charles, my name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.